From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Michael Halen, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Restaurant and Foods Service Analyst, uh, joins us now. Michael, McDonald's down the most since 2022. Uh, what do you think of the quarter? What was the big takeaway? Um, yeah, it was a weaker quarter than most expected, uh, for sure. Um, sales growth was was kind of weak. Um, you know, I, I, they, they cited the impact from the Israel-Hamas war and Obviously, that hurt results in the Middle East, but also in um, Muslim countries like Malaysia and, in, uh, and Indonesia, and then also countries like France that have a large uh, Muslim population. Um, it, it may have impacted sales here in the U.S. a bit as well. There's There were some calls to boycott the brand um, right after the start of the Israel-Hamas war. Um, those kind of went away uh, in December. Uh, in January, however, so there there could have been a mild impact in the United States as well. Uh, and then, in terms of key takeaways from the call, you know, they don't expect um, their developmental markets, where the Middle East is located, to improve really until the the, the war ends. And um, they cited some consumer weakness in the United States, which they have before, right? But it, but um, it seems like it may be spreading in terms of you know just low income consumer weakness you know it sounds like their customers right now are are, uh, managing their guest checks hey mike i'm just looking at the pgeo function on the bloomberg turbo and i see that roughly 60 percent of the revenue comes from franchise operated stores and about 40 percent from company operated stores Hmm. how did they make that decision about what when they go to a particular location whether to franchise or, or own it uh, I think a, a big part of it is return on investment, right? So if the returns on the investment are very strong, they typically want to uh, hold on to those stores or develop stores. You know, they'll, they'll do some store development in the United States and in their uh, more established markets, um, but it's going to be a small percentage of what they're doing going forward. You know, most of their growth is going to be, you know, done by their strong franchise partners, um, particularly particularly in, in China and some of these other very fast growing markets. Talk about the input part of the situation in terms uh, of their yeah. costs, in terms of uh, their labor and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, so, um, come on, you know, inflation uh, is easing for them uh, this year, um, but it, it's still probably higher than normal. Um, cows. They're looking at it's cows, man. Yep. Cows. <laughs> <laughs> That's part of it. Uh, for sure, beef and dairy costs are, are expected to be higher this year. So, um, but they're looking at a, you know low single-digit commodity inflation in the U- United States and abroad. Abroad had you know Europe had very sh- uh, high inflation last year, and that that's going to settle down a bit. Um, labor inflation is going to be continue to be um, you know higher 
uh, and, and a big chunk of a big part of that here is, you know, uh, in the U.S., you know, they're um, California. April 1st puts in the $20 minimum wage for fast food workers. And so uh, that's going to impact some of their stores, primarily their franchisees, however. Um, so so they're still seeing, you know, higher inflation than, um, you know, we had in the 20 teens for sure. Hey, Mike, I look at this stock and, you know, I, I need to pay a 22, 23 times earnings for this stock. What am I really getting? Is it something more than GDP top line growth? What's really the call behind um, this kind of stock? Yeah, well, with their global growth, they should they're going to probably grow higher uh, quicker than than GDP. You know what you're buying with a franchise business is, you know, pretty, pretty um, stable and predictable earnings growth. Uh, free cash flow growth. Um, there's not a lot of operating leverage in the model, and so uh, they're asset light, and so they can lever the business up and return cash to shareholders pretty aggressively. Um, so it, it, it's definitely an attractive model, especially one with the, the strong top line growth like McDonald's has, and and they they're also. Uh, you know, most investors can consider them slightly insulated against a recession and slower economic times. And a big part of that is that the is the value that they offer mm -hmm. um, during the Great Recession. They outperformed the quick service industry pretty Mike, significantly, acquired a lot of market share during that time. And so investors feel some sa there's some safety investing in McDonald's versus some of the other restaurant chains out there. But Mike, that confuses me with what you said about um, customers watching their checks uh, and, and their items and what they're buying. Because you would think if things are hard and people are struggling that you would get more value and people would go to McDonald's. But you were mentioning how, in general, people are watching their money more, so they're not. How does that kind of square? Yeah, so, so what we've seen is a lot of traffic deterioration over the last couple of years because price increases have been so aggressive and people's uh, spending is, is being pinched, right? Um, but the thing about quick service, you know, they're in the lower end of the market, right? And so they'll see during a, an economic slowdown, they'll see higher and middle income consumers kind of fall into their bucket. They'll try, they'll spend less at higher cost, full service occasions, and they'll visit McDonald's more often, whereas a lot of the low income consumers will kind of fall out of that bucket and, and decide to opt for the grocery store more often. So uh, they'll lose some traffic on the low end, but they'll they'll probably gain some with some of the middle and uh, upper income consumers. So Mike, who's really their competition these days? When I was a kid, it was Burger King and Wendy's, but now there's so much more out there. How, how do you kind of slice it? Yeah, it's the restaurant business, man. It's it's so fragmented. There's there's competition every everywhere, man. You know, to your point, convenience stores, grocery stores, <laughs> food trucks, um, you know, you name it. Uh, still, primarily, their biggest competition are are the fast food restaurants that are located closer closest to them. So, uh, it depends on the market. You know, California Jack in the Box is number two. Um, you know, Jack on the, the East box. Coast, yeah, you know, <laughs> Burger King is number two in, in most markets, I'd say, in the United States. Wendy's, obviously, is a big competitor of theirs. But also, you know, places like Chipotle and, and Shake Shack, you know, um, are, are also all competing for restaurant dollars with, with McDonald's. But, you know, we don't look too closely at market share in this business because it is so fragmented. And, um, you know, I, I don't really like total addressable market in restaurants because nobody's going to eat at McDonald's three times a day, seven days a week, you know. So, Wasn't there a movie um, on that? Wasn't there a documentary <laughs> that doing that? 
There was. There, mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, there All was. Right, hey, Mike, um, we got to leave it there. Mike, thanks a lot. Mike Halen, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Restaurant and Food Service Analyst joining us. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Estee Lauder. The stock's up 13% today. That's the short-term pop on, I guess, some cost cuts. We'll get to that with our next guest. Down 42% on a trailing 12-month basis. That's the longer-term story I want to dig into as well. And we can do it all with one Deborah Aiken. She is the senior luxury analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us uh, from London via Zoom. Uh, You want to talk luxury you want to talk high street shopping? You talk to Deb Aiken. So, Deb, let's start with Estee Lauder today. Good day for the company. Stock's up 13% today. What's driving the stock today? Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's all about, um, well, let's, let's say having really impacted negatively with several uh, earnings, with earnings downgrades and misses over the last six, seven quarters. The company uh, positively positively surprised. It met its organic sales uh, decline of 8%, not a growth. Um, and its EPS came in slightly better, so down 20%. Um, but the big thing is the restructure program. So it already has a restructure program in play. That didn't seem to be deep enough, uh, wide enough, and have enough detail to it. And now they've uh, raised 500 to 700 million of cost on a deeper restructure program to bring up to 1.4 billion through 25 and 26, mostly 25 or, or majority 25 weighted so, um, with the expectation. Uh, so that's kind of like 400 million extra on what they were expecting before Deb, in terms of operating profitability. What was the problem that they had to fix by doing that? Like, what, why is it so hard to be Estee Lauder? I thought everyone would pay a million dollars for perfect skin, not talking my book or anything. Right. The big thing over the last couple of years that we've seen, we've always known that Estee Lauder, a very premium product, and it did so well for so many years, but it had very high exposure in Asia. So we ended up a couple of years ago with a stuffed uh, retail, duty-free travel retail uh, area across China and some parts of Asia, which were exacerbated by South Korea also and the issues there with the Daegu shopper. And what we found, and we'd always been saying, you know, their supply side, the way that they organized themselves, the logistics, they didn't have the hubs in place in Asia to do as much as they were doing. So they were caught short or caught overstuffed. So they had far too much in trade and that has taken a long long time to temper down and start to normalize and we should return overall to growth this next quarter and deb let's stay with the china story because i know from talking to you over the years and reading your research the china consumer is just critical for luxury shopping can you give us a sense because i don't when i walk down madison avenue or fifth avenue i see all the european tourists back they're mm-hmm. back in you know in in size not so much with the Chinese. What's going on there? The big thing, we very late in getting visas through the reopening um, of, you know, as we thought from the beginning of last year, reopening of travel. But the view is that travel internationally won't come back until the second half of the year. And we are starting to hear some of those luxury companies saying we're seeing more Chinese, more Asian uh, customers in our stores. Um, back home, there's a lot more spending, flights are fuller, 
the surveys that we're doing are saying that they will travel, but a lot of that travel so far has been across Asia. But what's interesting is that not all are created equal. I feel like you can cherry pick a couple of luxury stocks that have been somewhat immune. And I'm just wondering mm-hmm. what those are. And I still like, and, and in the skincare world too, like what is that immune skincare high-end product that doesn't matter? We're all buying it anyway. I think that, you know, there are there's some huge uh, numbers in terms of some of the brands within the Estee Lauder portfolio doing extremely well. Lots of the brands are double digit, but it's that trade that draws down. When you look at the Europe number for, uh, for Estee Lauder, that's where they stock travel retail. That's where it sits in its P&L and it's down minus mm-hmm. 14. But actually Europe underlying is flat and it's the same for the North American market. Within that, there are brands like The Ordinary and La Mer and several of the the higher end brands doing very, very well up double digit. And it's the same across, um, if I think about the way that actually luxury and, you know, L'Oreal aside, L'Oreal is doing phenomenally well with a high base of its product in what it classes as L'Oreal looks. But let's go to some of the luxury companies and the way that LVMH and others are building sizable scale in uh, perfume and cosmetics. Mm. Uh, that's for growth of 6 to 8% per year and very strong margin. Um, so there are a lot of brands out there doing very, very well. Um, but in particular, what has happened is, and, and, and stock picking, cherry picking, um, it's about the brands who've had the portfolio that hasn't had so much Asia travel retail or mm. where it's really been able to manage that. Because even if I think about LVMH within its selective retailing, it housed DFS, duty-free stores and Sephora. And at one point last year, they were both down and they've now fully recovered. We're starting to see for the US, some robust numbers coming through, even from that aspirational end across luxury, across brands, it's getting a little better, but it's going to take time. And that's John Tucker with the aspirational spending. Do you invest in your face? Uh, other than maximum <laughs> what strength. What does that mean? Can you tell? I shave. Uh, no, no, <laughs> no I invest strength, in my face. Maximum strength, you know, sunblock is basically the only thing for this Irish American. Okay, but that, that's a really good thing. Yep. I mean, you're, you're doing something. Sure. Uh, but, you know, I was just thinking that the only thing that I will not buy on sale is my skincare. Skincare. Uh, because you just, mm. it never goes on sale. If you find something that works for you, you're you stick with it. a certain aged woman who <laughs> does media and on TV, like, oh, I will pay for it. Like, I mean, that's, I mean, I'm not wrong, Deb, right? The other thing that you do is you actually, without realizing, you trade up. And right, right now at the moment, there are some mm. youngsters who are under 20 who are already moving into anti-age, and the market is trying so, to stop that. True. So as you get older, you're trading up. Um, my story, which I think I relayed to Paul a while back, was... Um, late in the autumn, I was in um, England, in Cambridge, and there were three Chinese consumers who couldn't get product from La Prairie, very high-end skincare product, which is under the house of Beiersdorf, its biggest brand being Nivea. Um, And they were there spending over £3,000 on a little gift package of La Prairie, very (laughs) high-end eye product. That was way out of my price range. And Paul's like, what are these names? Are these real companies? What is this? I, I just use Irish Spring and a washcloth. That <laughs> does it for me. We can Unbelievable. <laughs> Hurts my soul. Invest in your face. This is this is the strong takeaway from that. Hey, Deb, how are the luxury stuff? What's what's kind of the luxury call here? I look at the uh, FA function for Estee Lauder, and it looks like for your the fiscal 2025, the June of 25 year, the street's looking for a big pickup in revenue and, and profitability for Estee Lauder. What's behind that? That's that's all about that inventory. The inv- 
and to put that inventory in Asia into context, it's dragged down skincare in this quarter, organic sales minus 10%. It's dragged down Europe to minus 14, where underlying Europe was flat because it stores that travel retail. So it's about that inventory normalizing and they're saying that that has happened right now at the end of 2Q. So we head into 3Q with normalized level. And so therefore, if that is the case and it's better managed, we should start to see double digit growth coming from there. And if we were looking underlying without that area, then we saw mid-single-digit growth. So that's what that's about. And then also on top of this new restructuring program and with some of those benefits to come through 25, we've been playing around on MODL on the calculator. And what we see there is around an expectation of 12 to 13% uplift to that 2025 operating profit to hopefully come through on consensus. Hey, Deb, nice. really appreciate it. Thank you so, so much, Deborah Aiken, Bloomberg Intelligence a Senior Industry Analyst. So just really is the question at the end of the day, when is China wind up coming back and traveling? And yeah, like, bet we're back to that trade, which was the trade la- yeah. last year at this exact same time. And do we buy it this time? Do you think I, it's real? I, I, boy, I don't know. I think so. Now they're back to, we heard from the Macau and Singapore gaming companies, the Chinese uh, travelers are there. Okay, let's go a little bit further now, see if they mm-hmm. can get the visas and the, the flights uh, to come to Europe. And to come to the U.S. because, again, Fifth Avenue. You talk to merchants on Fifth Avenue and Madison Avenue, and they're just, they're waiting for that. They thought it would be a twenty, yeah. you know, this year. I mean, a twenty-three event. It was not. So, um, but they're. I'm gonna see Paul like strolling down Fifth Avenue, like going into stores, like well, anthropology, I was, I was into being like, my, "Hey, how's uh, it going?" I was into my <laughs> mega store getting some work done on my watch, and I did ask that question, mm-hmm. and I typed to Deb Aiken right away. I say, "Here's some feedback from the the store on Fifth Avenue, coming, starting to come back a little bit." Starting to come back a little bit over the last uh, three or four months. That's so, but you know, they're just they're not taking over the city in the and same some way. of the, yeah, yeah. the traffic they did in some of these uh, luxury shopping areas. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies, from big tech to startups, will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. So Alex and I were, were talking earlier this morning at you know around 10 a.m. Wall Street time. Uh, ISM released uh, some really good services data. So let's get right to that uh, with Anthony Nieves. He's the chair of the ISM Services Business uh, committee. Uh, he joins us via Zoom. So, Anthony, again, the ISM Services Index came in at 53.4. That's the headline. Consensus was 52. And, and the last period is 50.6. Big jump there. Can you walk us through that? Certainly. When you uh, look at the uh, composite index, it was driven by new orders increasing 2.2 percentage points from the 52.8 to 55.0 and employment rebounded nicely. We contracted last month in December, was attributed to the uh, pullback. The pullback was attributed to the fact that 
the cycle time of hiring with the holidays and vacations and whatnot. And that rebounded nicely to 50.5, up significantly 6.7 percentage points. Hey, Anthony, great to see you. Um, we love this data. I love the instant analysis from it. It wasn't like all sunshine and rainbows, though. Walk us through sort of what areas of services did well, what area of services may be still contracting. When That's a great question. And you look at the uh, composite index and, and also prices were increasing 7.3 percentage points, 56.7 up to 64. Food prices still remain very strong. Uh, that, I feel, has impacted uh, the Fed looking at interest rate cuts. Um, our respondents are telling us that they'd love to see uh, continued cuts in the interest rates. But the bright side of that, uh, there's capital spending, new projects are being released. When you look at the top five industries that contribute to GDP uh, overall, real estate rental and leasing is still contracting. Uh, the increase is coming from professional, scientific, technical services, as well as healthcare, social assistance, very strong this month. So, I mean, the services is 70% of our economy. I, I mean, this, I can't see a GDP contraction scenario coming out of, you know, we get data like this. I mean, are you guys at the ISM, are you, what's your economic call here? When we look at this uh, monthly report coupled with the semi-annual forecast, what our respondents indicated to us that the first half, especially in services, wasn't going to be that robust, but the second half was going to be better. I feel we're slightly ahead of the trend. And to your point about uh, you know GDP growth, I think, what was it, 3.3% last year? When we look at the composite index this month annualized, it's at one5 and if we see the second half, as uh, they indicated to us, being stronger, uh, we'll have this incremental growth uh, continue. It'll be a good story for the uh, services sector. So when we come to the prices paid, though, I mean, it's pretty staggering. Jumped the most since 2012. Was this a supply story or a demand story? Because we have seen a lot of supply chain snarls, et cetera. Well, we definitely see that it's a demand issue especially with new orders, even though it looks like, you know, at 55, it's it's middling as, as far as the uh, growth, 2.2 percentage points up in the 52.8. But definitely it has some constraint on transportation. Uh, and that was indicated to us by our respondents. They said that there's challenges with the Suez Canal, with the conflict over in the Red Sea, as well as the Panama Canal. We're seeing uh, the capacity has reduced to less than half of what it was based on the uh, issues with uh, being able to fill up the locks with the water uh, shortage mm -hmm. over there. Interesting. All right, so what's what are you looking for going forward here just to kind of get a sense of the consumer? Is it the labor market? Is that the primary driver here? Or what else kind of, from your perspective, influences the consumer? Well, you know, the labor market and employment, you look at it at 50.5, that's, that's a really uh, interesting story there. It continues the same trend and pattern that we've seen certain industries they're still going through job cuts whereas others are finding competitiveness in the marketplace and trying to recruit and hire applicable workers but overall uh, it's really coming down to where is it driven from and right now it seems to be those two industries that i mentioned previously professional scientific technical services as well as the uh, healthcare and social all right before we let assistance. you go me. anthony before we let you go um is this an economy that has the risk of actually running hotter if you're just looking at the responding data here? 
Not really, because okay. looking at it at uh, the 53.4, it's not over. It's not in any risk of overheating at this point. Hey, Anthony, really great to get your perspective. Thank you so much. Um, interesting. Goldilocks. I mean, yep. at the end of the day, like, I okay, know. prices pay a little bit, but this is definitely a Goldilocks story. Anthony Navis, uh, he joins us. Chair of the ISM Services Business Committee. It's really nice to get the details yep. of the big data points. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Is the ISM Services Index really solid? Prices paid, really solid. Employment, higher. New orders, higher. So let's get the breakdown here uh, on what this all means. Danielle DiMartino Booth is CEO and Chief Strategist of QI Research. Um, Danielle, what do you make of this economy? I mean, it's really hard to see any kind of slowing. It's really hard to see sort of where that's going to come from. What's your take? Well, um, I think of, of all of the uh, of all of the indicators that we've seen in the last few days, uh, the where it's going to come from part is the most apparent at this juncture. You know, <clears throat> one of the things that we noticed when the ISM services report came out in December was that the employment component had dropped to 43 and change. We went, oh, my gosh, that's absolutely the worst we've ever seen. Of course, this morning it rebounded back above the 50 line that 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 separates expansion and contraction. All good and well, you say, right? Well, you look under the hood, ISM services covers 18 industries. In November, there were 10 that had rising employment. In December, there were seven of those 18 with rising employment in seven sectors. In January, there were three. And so I think we have to be very careful with the data about getting too excited about any one headline you know one of the things that came out on friday in the employment report was that the headline employment had increased by 325,000 you peel the onion back a layer and you find out that since the month of february since february we haven't had a single full-time uh, job created in the united states in fact it's been negative 97,000 since then so the reason i think markets are a little bit schizophrenic is because you have to keep looking left and right or you're going to get run over yeah, one of the many reasons I like having Danielle on the show because I like to just take the headline number and run with it. She yes. doesn't do that. She doesn't allow me to do that. She says I got to peel back layers and onions and things like that. So Danielle, I think if I kind of read your very uh, good social media profile, you're not in the soft landing camp, are you? What's your call here? I sense you're more cautious and you think the market should be more cautious. Yeah, I, I do think the market should be more cautious. We have we have several signposts uh, that show that October is probably when the National Bureau of Economic Research is going to go back and and backdate the recession. We actually have uh, one of their main indicators that they follow, uh, which is income X transfers, X government transfers adjusted for inflation. Uh, that's negative. If you um, if you look at industrial production, one of the huge arbiters of recession for the NBER, it also uh, is negative. And in fact, we're starting to see problematic inventory build in autos. 
we we had that we had auto, auto sales come in at 15.0 million seasonally adjusted annualized rate uh they were expected to come in at 15.7 that was a, a quiet a report that kind of went by the wayside last Thursday. So there are so many revisions going on. Goldman Sachs did a huge report at the end of the year that said every single month of retail sales in 2023 had been revised downwards and that retail sales were flat on the year. I, I think we're having such an issue with statisticians in Washington, D.C., because so many of their seasonal analysis uh, modeling is based off of and includes the pre-pandemic era. Mm -hmm. So the time the dust settles, they're like, oh, wait, wait, now that we've got everything in, or maybe we've got the smallest sample size in the history of, say, the non-farm payroll survey, once we get all of the data in hand, we were incorrect. We're going to go back and revise that down. So, I can so that's imagine a lot of the that, issues. Danielle, this makes your job difficult, our job difficult, and the Fed's job even more difficult. Um, so we're now looking at a little over four uh, cuts priced in for this year. What, what do you mm -hmm. think is legit, particularly with all this uncertainty and revisions that you're talking about, and when would it start? Well, had it not been for the very strong tone that Chair Jay Powell uh, voiced on on 60 Minutes last night, I, I'm, I would be more in the camp of saying if they do start to cut rates, they will do so at every meeting beginning in May, so May, June, July, and September. Uh, but Chair Powell seems so adamant in communicating that he will be the apolitical Fed chair. He will be nonpartisan. He will not be viewed as being political in an election year. It's a toss up 50-50 whether or not the Fed historically has cut rates or raised rates, made, taken any action in the FOMC that immediately precedes the election. That would be the September the 18th FOMC. I wouldn't be surprised to see three rate cuts May, June, and July, and then a pause. Interesting. So from your perspective, Danielle, the data you look at, which is not necessarily the, the data that lay people like me look at, which is basically how much does it cost to fill up my car with gas, um, is inflation whipped in this country or no? You know, it's interesting you ask that question because uh, recently, Truflation, T-R-U-flation, which a bunch of bond traders introduced to me, they actually gave me the raw data. Uh, we ran a quick correlation. It's got a 0.97 correlation with cool. headline inflation, the headline CPI. Uh, two times ago, Truflation popped down underneath the Fed's 2% target. I said, well, what happened there? And it was mostly led by hotels. And it was one sector. Last week, it dropped down to one4 1.4%. Yep. And so I reached out to the founders of Truflation. I said, what gives? What was that huge swing factor? Did I miss it? Did I fill up at the gas tank for a lot less? And they said, no, Danielle, 10 out of 12 categories had appreciably large declines, meaning the disinflation that was a one-off here or there has become extremely widespread. If you've got 10 out of your 12 major categories, more than 300 million real-time prices feed this monster model per day with, again, a 97% correlation with headline CPI. I, I think that his that Powell's bigger impediment going into the second half of 2024 might be larger rate cuts than he anticipates or would like. Hmm. if right. inflation's coming down as quickly as it is. All right, Danielle, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your input. Uh, Danielle DiMartino Booth, she's the CEO and chief strategist at QI Research, joining us via Zoom from 
Big D, Dallas, Texas. She was on the Fed, uh, uh, Dallas Fed down there uh, years past. So great perspective there. We appreciate uh, chatting with her. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk about the uh, real company out there, um, Element Solutions. Ben Glicklich joins us. He's the CEO of Element Solutions. Uh, he joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We appreciate it. You're based down in Fort Lauderdale? Yeah, Miami. Nice. But why are you good. here? Yeah, why? Be in Miami. Well, because everybody's, is it going crazy down there? What is it? I mean, is it just nuts with all these people coming down? There's a ton of energy. It's a great place to live and work. Um, for better or worse, I'm on the road three months, three weeks out of the month because the business is very global. Just for background, Paul wants to be there. Like he yeah. wants to move to Florida. He wants to do the show from there. Exactly. All right. Talk to us about Element Solutions. I know you guys are in, just tell us about your company, what you do, sure. uh, and then we'll go from there. Great, so Element Solutions is a provider of chemical technology that enables high performance applications. So our materials and process solutions are used in manufacturing high value products from semiconductors to smartphones to high performance automobiles. So your customers are technology companies primarily? So our customers are technology supply chains. Technology we're, supply chains. We're, we're, send, we're selling to printed circuit board manufacturers, semiconductor manufacturers. It's a very fragmented ah. below the original equipment manufacturers that make the smartphones and the cars. So we're a critical enabler of their technologies, but we're not selling directly to them. So you're not making like plastic for the end user kind of thing either, because usually like what, what I love about chemicals is that is that really close early cycle read on the global economy, right? Like what Air Products is doing in relationship telling me about China. That's not you guys. So we're selling critical components mm -hmm. that enable performance of high value uh, products. So we do have a read on what the next generation smartphone is going to look like. Um, we have a read on trends in automotive and other electronics and markets. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. How did you find yourself to this business? It's a fantastic business. It's a, it's, I'll, I'll take your word for it, but I mean, <laughs> it's not something that I would have thought about just off. You have to have been dropped in there somehow. So hmm. uh, better lucky than good, I would say. Okay. Uh, I partnered with our chairman, uh, Sir Martin Franklin, who's been very successful building multiple different businesses. And together, uh, through acquisitions, we built this portfolio cool. of market-leading uh, chemical now it technologies. Doesn't, when I think chemical company, I don't think South Beach. <laughs> it's true. I, th I think like Cleveland. So, uh, w what are you doing in South Beach? Not that, or Miami? What's uh, no reason not to be there? Everybody else is. So uh, we are there because it's as good of a place as any, and our business is very dispersed. We have 160 locations in over 30 countries, wow. more than 60 manufacturing sites, 
And so my job is to make sure that our folks are working on the right things with the right incentives. And so I'm traveling as chief cheerleader uh, to visit our people all over the world uh, most of my time. And coming home to Florida isn't such a bad That's thing. That's not a bad thing. It's chief a publicly traded company. ESI is the ticker. Uh, for those playing at, at home, it's up, uh, I guess it's got a market cap of about five and a quarter billion dollars uh, on a trailing 12 month basis, up about 2% a year to date off about 6%. What's the message you bring to your shareholders? You're in New York, I'm sure you're seeing some shareholders as well. What's the message for your company? So this business has come off of a, a difficult demand environment in 2023. Electronics markets drew down significantly. The global industrial economy stuttered a little bit. And as we enter 2024, we managed 23 well, preserved profits, uh, made some great capital allocation decisions to position the business well for growth, and our end markets are getting better. Semiconductor markets are improving, electronics markets are improving. And so we're well positioned for you know, several years here of above cycle, above cycle average growth. Huh. Is that an inventory thing or is it an end user demand thing? Are we just restocking inventory at this point? It's an end user demand thing. Um, huh. We did have a drawdown of channel inventories post COVID. There was a bullwhip effect. Electronics were overbought um, by the supply chain in 2021 into 2022. There was a big inventory clearance in 2023. And now we're starting to see semiconductor production increase. We're starting to see new smartphone models gaining traction. Um, our story is not just one of units. It's content per unit. And so the more technically challenging, the more robust the application, the more value for a company like ours. And so we're going to grow over and above units through the cycle. Um, and unit growth is, is poised to recover nicely here. So I'm just looking at the uh, FA functional in the Bloomberg Terminal Financial Analysis. It looks like the street's got kind of mid-single-digit kind of revenue growth over the next several years. Mid-teens EPS growth, so some operating leverage in your business model. Is that what you're telling investors to buy, or did you also say, hey, this is also a fragmented business, and if we see things out there to buy to maybe goose our, our growth rate, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. How do you think about that? So the answer is yes. Okay. Um, in the first instance, the business is asset light. It generates incredibly strong cash flows. So our, yep. our moat isn't in manufacturing process. It's in technology and people. And so we don't have to invest a lot of capital in order to drive the business's growth. And then we're able to find very interesting things to do with that strong cash flow. So we've been very acquisitive in our history. And um, we doubled our adjusted earnings per share in our first three years as a public company. We set a goal to do that in five years. We set another goal to double it again in five years. And we're in the middle of that process right now. The goal is to compound EPS in the teens. So what about the, infl what about the input side? Like it sounds like you're trying to run pretty lean, um, but we still definitely see inflation kind of all around. Any kind of manufacturing is, is gonna get hit by that. And I appreciate that you're sort of on a different scale, but what do you see? So we've had inflation over the past several years. Mm -hmm. It started to stem, uh, big inflation in logistics. Drop or just stop? A little bit of both. Hmm. So logistics have plateaued. They're starting to come in a little bit, but with some of the disruptions in global supply chains, we're starting to see a bit of pressure there. Raw material price inflation has slowed down. We're starting actually to see some deflation. Hmm. As a company, we're able to take price from customers when our costs increase um, and typically able to hold that. And so margins have gotten better in the back half of 2023, and we expect that to continue in 2024. Hmm. So you recently acquired a company uh, a new science, a new copper science company. What is that? So this is a really exciting opportunity. There aren't big step change breakthroughs in material science in our markets. What used to work typically works with small modifications. Okay. We acquired a business called Cuprion that has a product called Active Copper, which is nano particulate copper. That is a new mechanism 
to enable next generation electronics. If you think about your smartphone, its computing power is getting greater through smaller lines on the circuit board and smaller holes uh, connecting the layers of the circuit board. And conventional material science struggles to, to, to deal with those technical challenges. Cuprion is a solution for that. So it's got huge potential. We've got great customer engagement. It's a very, very exciting story, uh, not just for our company, but for our customers. Um, on a broader sense, the the smartphone trough, like the electronics trough, you were mentioning sort of we had a lot of buying and then that came down during the pandemic now and then we're sort of, have we troughed? Are we going to see a meaningful acceleration over the next, say, 18 months? So we it, basically, is Paul going to buy a new phone? That's, <laughs> what, what, you, you have a 12? Is this? I'm an 11. You're an 11? It's fine. It's See, fine. okay, so speak to me about Paul. Yeah, there's, the, 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 so the, the smartphone market, we call the bottom in broader electronics in the second quarter, and we saw a recovery in the back half. Um, the slope of that recovery is uncertain, but the long-term legs of uh, increased technical requirements for electronics are very, very long-running. And the smartphone replacement cycle has extended, and smartphone saturation of the market is getting there. Um, we trough from a unit's perspective in 2023. We'll see unit growth in 2024, we expect that. But we're starting to gear up for the next thing. The next thing is enabled by AI, right? So more computing power proliferating around the edge of the network has very, very high technical demands. And we're not capacitated by the number of people on earth when it comes to AI, right? The number of smartphones is kind of driven by the number of people walking around. AI, you know, industrial automation is not capped by that. Mm. And as we get autonomous factories and autonomous cars, there's just more and more application space for high performance electronics, which is great for our company. 30 seconds. Who do you compete with? We've got great competitors, um, <laughs> and uh, but diverse competitors. We're the only company in our market that can speak to the breadth of electronics applications that, that, that we have in our portfolio. So we compete a bit with DuPont. We compete with a company called Atatech that's part of MKS Group. We've got local competitors in markets like Japan and China. Um, it's a competitive market, but our ability to provide value to customers through uh, materials compatibility and, and a broad product offering is unrivaled. See, I was trying to figure out how he got to where he is. Mm. Now I figured it out. And? Investment banking to private equity. Then he says, screw this. I'm going to go and do it myself. <laughs> and he went to like a real industry and get a real job that makes stuff. I've seen that route before. A lot of successful Real industries that make done. stuff is really fun. Yeah, That's you feel really like cool. I'm not just going to bank these people. I'm going to go do it. Ben Glicklich, uh, CEO of Element Solutions. Uh, appreciate you coming in here uh, into our studio. It's a fascinating company. Never would have thought about it. I learned something new today. Element Solutions. You need all the chemical stuff for the tech and the chips and all that kind and of stuff. And the things. And there are people that do that for a living. <laughs> Uh, that's good stuff. This is the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live each weekday, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also watch us live every weekday on YouTube and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, 
top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.